Hey everybody, this is Richard Deitch and welcome to the Sports Media Podcast. My producer as always is Lou Pellegrino. Two guests this week, two different conversations, but I think you're going to enjoy it. First up is Jim Miller, and he of course the best-selling author of books on ESPN, CAA, and Saturday Night Live. And we go into a number of ESPN-related topics, including where ESPN's journalism is going to be under Jimmy Pitaro, as opposed to John Skipper, as well as what is ESPN's relationship with the NFL going to be heading forward. And that is a very, very big one for ESPN, for Disney, and its business. After that, it is Conrad Thompson, who is, uh, if you are a uh, wrestling fan, you know the name. He hosts three of the most popular wrestling podcast out there something to wrestle with bruce pritchard 83 weeks with eric bischoff what happened when with tony shivani conrad was on the podcast when um, i was at sports illustrated and he went through what is a pretty amazing um journey from being a mortgage uh uh uh, person who sells mortgages to people in huntsville alabama to now a six big figure business hosting these wrestling podcasts doing live shows and that's what today's episode is about. Um, I get really deep into, one, how the Eric Bischoff podcast came together. But more than that, what, how, pod, how Conrad has extended these podcasts with all these extensions, from live shows to, um, to selling uh, T-shirts to uh, just the, how big this business has gotten. And I think even Conrad would say it's pretty incredible. We also talk about Hulk Hogan's return to WWE and Ronda Rousey's success in WWE. So Jim Miller and Conrad Thompson coming up on the Sports Media with Richard Dutch podcast. All right, and we bring in one of our favorite guests, James Andrew Miller, the ESPN author, CAA author. Uh, he is in Los Angeles now. Just, by the way, just back not too long ago for some ESPYs post parties. So he will be sleep deprived and, you know, he probably will not reveal the bullface names he's been hanging out with, but we appreciate him joining us on the Sports Media Podcast. Jim, how are you, other than sleep-deprived? Other than sleep-deprived, uh, thanks for having me. You were at the ESPYs last night. You were also at the ESPY, ESPYs post-parties. And uh, listen, the ESPYs can be an exercise in star-fucking, but it also has these powerful moments which, in my opinion, kind of save it. What uh, Last night was some pretty powerful stuff, and you were in the audience, right? Yeah, I mean, it was. It really was from uh, Jim Kelly's speech and Jake Woods to... Uh, there was an incredible moment where the families of the slain coaches at Marjorie Stoneman uh, came on stage, and uh, just somehow, even though we knew so much about that awful day, uh, they just took it to another level. And of course, the finale with all the women who had been abused over so many years um, by that crazy, crazy evil man at uh, Michigan State. I think it was. Um, it really, you know, it it really was. Um, quite an evening. And, uh, you know, Mara Mant, who's the executive producer of the ESPYs, uh, she is a force of nature. And I think, you know, literally one of the most talented executive producers in television. And every year she sweats this thing out and suffers over every single detail. And there's no detail too small for her to, you know, feel anguish about. And yet at the end of the day, um, you know, there may be some cringeworthy comedic attempts that fail, but uh, the emotion and the power and the journalism even of uh, of those big pieces is, uh, you know, quite remarkable. Jim, if, uh, one last one on this, just because it sort of occurs to me. You think if Mormant and Connor Shell and the rest of the ESPN leadership had to do it over again, you think they would have given Caitlyn Jenner 
an award again? Or you think if they had to redo, they would have chosen someone who didn't obviously inflame so many, um, so many viewers, so many ESPN viewers? Obviously, to me, I had no issues with it. I understood where they were coming from. But let's be honest, that selection that year really became a, a rallying cry for some people in terms of anti-ESPNism. Well, um, for anyone who doesn't know Mara Mant, they should know that uh, she wouldn't take back Caitlin for one second. In fact, she'd probably, if she heard about the reaction, she'd probably make the segment longer, the presentation, the award. Um, she's totally fearless, and she doesn't, uh, she doesn't make decisions based on holding a finger up to the air. And I think that Skipper, who was president at the time, wouldn't take it back either, in part because... I think there's still a belief there that when is issues of transgender right or left? Um, this isn't, that isn't a conservative. I mean, it happens to be that Caitlyn Jenner is a conservative, right? I mean, they, they never saw this as, hey, guess what? If we give Caitlyn Jenner this award, we're going to get to be known as, uh, you know, the liberal uh, sports network. They, they didn't attach any political orthodoxies to it. A lot of people did. But when you really deconstruct what that award was about, um, it really wasn't about uh, it really wasn't about politics, uh, you know, in terms of right versus left. Uh, giving her th- that award doesn't mean okay. So now we're you know we're 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 pro life, pro gun. Uh, we're going to adopt the Republican platform. I mean, my gosh, uh, Caitlin as I said, was, is a Republican. So I, I don't think they would regret it for a moment. Interesting. Yeah. And what ultimately that, uh, um, you know, that award that year was about, was about someone who, um, uh, gave, um, trans people a, a really public person to rally around. So what they weren't prepared uh, it's, for it's, was probably that the people who wanted to create trouble for ESPN would, be able to do such an effective job in creating a narrative using that um, and using the Michael Sam kiss at the draft or whatever as um, as evidence for this um, apparent, you know, uh, for, for this this uh, theoretical right wing agenda, uh, left wing agenda. Yeah, that's that's interesting. No, I agree with you. Uh, and again, we've done that podcast. So we'll probably do it again. But um, but the SPs again is always it's an always an. In- I wouldn't say it's an interesting show because I don't particularly love the show itself, but it's an interesting exercise for ESPN because it combines the best and worst of ESPN. The worst being the star fucking, the self-indulgence, the self-promotion. The best being these incredible moments like what we saw with Ali Raisman and those 140 brave women and you know Kelly's speech. And it, that, that, that's what's interesting. Let me ask you a question. So tomorrow morning you wake up and you and somebody calls and says, we just fired Connor Shell. You got his job. Whether you want it or not, you take his job. Do you think that being in the uh, sports business where celebrities are, you know, oxygen for the business? I mean, star athletes, uh, you know, get a lot of eyeballs, right? They attract a lot of attention. Um, do you think that you would say, no, Let's not be in the celebrity business. Um, we don't want to, you know, we don't, we don't want to, like, you know, do any of that glitzy stuff at all. We just want to do X's and O's with, uh, 
you know, John Gruden in a small dark room. I mean, like that's just part of the business. No, I'm not doing that. But I would, I would, I would, I would, I would change the ESPYS uh, to be very blunt, and I would eliminate a lot of the red carpet pageantry prior to it, and I would, I would rethink it. That said, I'm not getting Connor Shell's job, and I understand that I may have a POV that is, you know, uh, pr- uh, uh, different than what an ESPN management person's POV would be, given that there is a commercial aspect to the ESPYs, and there's a, a, a larger aspect in terms of the connection between celebrity and sports and ESPN, which is important to them. I'm a realist. I get it. Yeah. But as someone just looking at it as an, as an observation – I'm telling you how I think it plays a lot of times. I think yeah, it no, plays listen, to I, ESPN's. I look, and there are people in Bristol. There are people in Bristol who uh, think that the ESPYs, you know, there's a lot of money spent, and uh, you know, it's a very anti-Bristol thing. But I think that if you look you're at you're laying off, you're laying off people as you're paying. You know, I mean, no offense, you're laying off people as you're hosting a five hundred thousand dollar post ESPYs party. It's well, hard wait, to swallow for me. You're assuming that it's a money losing proposition. No, no, no. I'm just saying. I'm talking about expenditure. My guess is it probably is a. It could be a money making proposition, given the uh, commercial time they sell on the show, and given whatever the sponsorship. Well, wait. Is. If I'm it's just making, telling you let's that. Just assume for ahead. a second that if it's if it's making money, then how does that conflict with, or how does that even relate to laying off people? Well, because again, you could, in theory, you could take that money that is being invested in this product and place it place it elsewhere. You can still, in theory, could I still not make money on the ESPYs if I didn't host a post-ESPY party? I bet you I can make more, in the, it, right? I mean, if you're going to use your thought exercise, what if I save $700,000 by not throwing a post-ESPY party and I hired 10 reporters? Wouldn't I still make money on the ESPYs and now I'd have these 10 reporters? No, it doesn't really work that way. Um, because the the party itself is part of the whole evening. It's probably got sponsors. There's um, salespeople that are their clients that are invited, and it's also just infusing the SB brand with the kind of things that are attendant to it. Um, I don't. I mean, look, I, I'm not going to stand up here and uh, and 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 justify every dollar. My only point is, I think that from from a from a like a high high point here, you're looking down. I think that ESPN decided 25 years ago that, you know, for one day out of the 365 days, they're going to change their colors, so to speak, and be a little bit more celebrity-driven, not be as tight-fisted as they are in uh, in Bristol sometimes. But remember, ESPN, you know, they spend some money on other things too. So um, my my whole point is, I just think that in terms of the delivery system of, let's say, just last night, uh, when you look at that Jim Kelly thing or when you look at Jake Wood or Marjorie Stoneman segment or, of course, the finale, um, that's pretty powerful stuff. And that's part of the DNA of ESPN as well. And um, if you take away any of the kind of, I think, illegitimate political attachments that people try and make to uh, some of these awards, um, I think it's a pretty. It makes for a pretty powerful evening. If you're if you're sitting in that theater, and you saw any of those four segments, believe me, um, you would be moved. And it was incredibly well done. So I think that they have a lot to be proud of today. All right, I buy that. All right, good job. Once again, your management. I'm rank and file, but this is no <laughs> oh surprise for this podcast. All right, 
And just like Lou, by the way, Lou Pellegrino also rank and file as well. So here, all right, here we go, Jim. Let's finally let's get past Los Angeles. If you let me know if you need to take a break, you know, because I know you're tired. If you have a spa treatment or anything, but we'll, let's continue on with this podcast, and we will stick with ESPN because obviously it is a topic both of us are versed on. You certainly well versed on, and we're six weeks away from the start of the NFL season. If we're not six weeks away, I apologize. But, you know, people who are listening get this. We're we're getting closer to the start of the NFL season. And one of the really interesting topics, and you've written about this a lot, is ESPN's relationship with the NFL. And very clearly under John Skipper, it was frayed. There would be people who threw out there that, like, John Skipper really didn't care about the NFL. That might be a little bit of an overstretch or an overstatement, but he certainly, in terms of relationships, he had a very different relationship with the NFL than he did with NBA brass and soccer brass, etc. Now that Jimmy Pitaro is the new president of ESPN, and obviously Disney now I think has much stronger tentacles uh, in terms of management when it comes to ESPN, where would you say ESPN's relationship is right now with the NFL under Jimmy Pitaro as we tape this in uh, late July? They are uh, trying to shove as much toothpaste back into the tube as possible. They are trying to uh, repair a relationship that needed uh, repairing. They are trying to position themselves not just for a really great season ahead, but they're more importantly trying to make sure the league knows that they want to be a valued and trusted partner. So those negotiations that start um, all too soon and like within a couple of years, um, they're in a better position than they were uh, under Skipper. And in fact, you know, I will, I will always believe that uh, Skipper probably wouldn't have gone for a renewal of the Monday night deal. And, uh, and now that's not to say that Bob Iger, his boss, wouldn't have prevailed and said, well, we're going for it anyway. I don't care if you want it. But I think that, uh, look, I, I wrote a column that made a case for ESPN not renewing um, because it's a lot of money. At the time, they clearly had the fourth worst schedule. They did a little bit. They did better this year, um, but I think that uh, you know, it's clear that it's that relationship with the NFL is important to Jimmy. It's important to Kevin Mayer, who's uh, very involved with ESPN in Burbank, and it's of course important to Bob Iger. So I, I think we've gone from a situation where we're wondering whether or not ESPN is even going to bid to a situation where who knows? I mean. Broadcast is strong. The NFL loves broadcast, so maybe ABC will even bid. This um, this is interesting to me, Jim, because one of the pieces that you wrote that got a lot of traction was your thesis that that ESPN might let go of Monday Night Football and sort of recalibrate and rethink its NF, you know, sort of larger NFL plate. At this point, are you? Is there any doubt in your mind that ESPN is going to continue to want to be in the business of airing games? Because I think you are dead right on this. I think everything Jimmy Pitaro has put out there tells me that the that ESPN is all in now on the NFL long term and that they they want to be a broadcaster for as long as they can. And really the question will be, you know, what's the price going to be and does the NFL want to be in business with them? But I think it's been a sea change and I think I think they're all in on games heading forward. You agree? Yeah. Oh, yeah. That, that's what I was just trying to say. Absolutely. I think that there's no uh, 
There's there's no doubt. Now the the problem is, and the, the and when you get into that frame of mind, um, there's there's an issue that comes up then, and it and it speaks directly to the kind of journalism and the journalistic engine that is at C- ESPN. Um, there has been for some time, a, you know, some tension or at least a different philosophical approach within ESPN about handling the NFL. And the, you know, the, the question has always been, how hard do you go on it? Because the ESPN uh, journalistic effort could be really, really tough. And when it's really tough, the league gets pissed. The league takes notice. The league takes names. They, they, this, is, this, is a, this is an organization that doesn't like to be criticized. And so um, as a result, I mean, I wrote the piece for the New York Times when, um, you know, the NFL took Skipper and then head of uh, programming and production, John Wildhack, out to lunch and uh, read them the riot act and had them and basically forced them to pull out of the PBS front line that they were doing. Um, and that was at a public restaurant. Uh, you know, this is, this is tough stuff. And so what you have inside are two different camps within ESPN. Some people who think that ESPN should be as aggressive um, as they've ever been, if not more, about covering the NFL and uh, covering the players and really closely examining league policy and some of the um, – some some of uh, the rules and methods that the league is using, and you have other people saying, you know, they're going to hold that against us, and that's going to result in maybe a dis- you know, us being in um, not a great position as, let's say, Fox, who's going going to be going for more rights, and Fox isn't isn't as aggressive with uh, with their coverage of the NFL, and we got to pull back because we got to start currying favor in a different way than we have been. So it's interesting, and, and I will say that um, that's, that's one of the key areas where we're going to get to see uh, Jimmy's, Jimmy Pitaro's leadership because, I mean, Connor Shell is head of content, and obviously he'll be inextricably linked with some of those questions, but that because it's the NFL, it's going to be, it's going to be, it's going to rise to Jimmy's level, and it, and I'm sure that there will be times when it will rise to Bob Iger's level, and you know, it'll be interesting to see during this coming season how many really tough um, no-holes-barred uh, reports there are about something that's going to go awry in the NFL and whether it's going to have the same kind of intensity um, that that it did under Skipper. I mean, Skipper, Skipper loved to tweak the, the NFL. It's part of the reason why the relationship was so fractured. And uh, he also had a strong commitment to, you know, going to um, going to the mat in terms of the coverage. So uh, I'm really going to be paying attention to what the journalism of the football season is, not just the games and analysis. I'm glad you. This is really what I want to talk to you about today. So I'm glad you brought this up. You brought us into where I want to go. What's interesting to me, Jim, is I've talked to a number of people who are right in the middle of ESPN's journalism efforts. And I have to say that I don't think I'm overcharacterizing them to say that they're cautiously approaching the Pitaro era. Not to say that they think Jimmy Pitaro is all about promotion and, you know, is going to sort of use more of, like you said, the Fox Sports model where, you know, outside of Jake Laser, they don't really 
do anything to go really that deep into the NFL's underbelly. And these are experienced, long-time investigative-type people, and I think they're really wondering what ESPN is going to be journalistically under Jimmy Pitaro. The thought always was that if, um, if John Skipper was around, things like OTL and the long-form investigative pieces that they do on ESPN.com, there'd always be a place for that because Skipper believed in that. You know, even though clearly we saw what happened with Grantland in 538, those initiatives did start under Skipper because he has a journalism background, an English back. you know, sort of a, he, he respects the written word. He was at Rolling Stone, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know Jimmy Pitaro a lot better than I do. And I think you know Jimmy Pitaro better than a lot of the people who cover the space. Any indication on where Pitaro stands on all this stuff long term in terms of a a real commitment to journalism, and that commitment is about, one, dealing with the heat when the leagues don't like what you're doing. But I think even beyond that, it's having a culture that allows you to pursue any kind of story and not just the occasional investigative piece just so you can say you're doing investigative journalism. I'll, I'll let you run with what I with, with, with obviously what I just asked was a very long question. I mean, look, I think Jimmy is a is a businessman. He's a pragmatist. Skipper was a disruptor, even though I think that word sometimes is overused nowadays. And there was a part of him, given his Rolling Stone roots and whatever, that liked tweaking power. He also loved, he loved journalism. And, you know, when he was in charge of the magazine and then later .com, um, he had a real commitment to it. So, excuse me. So I think that, you know, they just come from a different place. Um, I think Jimmy is very focused on objectives. And if one of the objectives of his stewardship is going to be creating a stronger bond between Bristol and Park Avenue, where the NFL headquarters are, then, you know, I think that requires doing some things. It's going to be, I think, probably the toughest balancing act of his presidency um, because it's not easy. There are things that come up during the course of an NFL season. There are things that owners say and players do, and there's just so much that happens outside the game itself. And you have a lot of people from Bob Lee all, you know, and hundreds of others, um, not just people on camera, but people who are producers who you know, really pride themselves on being investigative journalists there, and they're going to want to go after these things. And so it's going to be very clear. There will be a moment where something happens and there's going to be a report on it or a coverage on it, and it's going to uh, reveal itself very quickly, whether or not they're going to go with an unvarnished look and a tough look and an uncompromising objective look at it, or if they're going to pull some punches. And I think that to your point about people who are working there now, they're they're somewhat cautious. I think that's right only because uh, they understand that there is a business objective at work here and no one's quite sure how it's going to play out. How, um, how do you think uh, Jimmy Pitaro and Connor Shell and the new or the newer ESPN administration looks and thinks about outside the lines? One of the things that I always, um, it's a bit of a cynical take, while obviously I have immense respect for Outside the Lines and immense respect for Bob Lee, I also think it provided a bit of cover for ESPN in that 
when they were at their sort of nonsense Skip Bayless type worst, they could always say, hey, you know, we have outside the lines. You, you know, you send a couple press releases from uh, La Placa Inc. to say all the stuff you're doing on outside the lines. And it shows that you're a serious news organization and indifferent to the other stuff. Um, what do you think Pataro thinks of, of o, uh, OTL in terms of the brand and extending that brand? Or is it, you know, these guys look at it like, hey, you know, it's a nice little 30-minute spot on our on our weekday. It's a nice little hour spot on our weekend. And, you know, I, we, lo- we look at it the same way we look at how pardon, you know, pardon the interruption around the horn is doing. Well, full full disclosure, I've never specifically talked to Jimmy about OTL, but I think that, again, it's going to be one of those things where OTL could be this unbelievably aggressive entity and they're going to be uncompromising, or it could be something that is kind of a smaller, um, less aggressive version of what it used to be. And um, the great thing about these questions is that there will be answers. Like I was saying before, you know, we're going to head into this season and we're going to be watching these shows and seeing the coverage and we're going to get to see how, how they do it. I mean, as far as Connor's concerned, it's really interesting because Connor was very much a Henry Kissinger type in his previous role and all the great work that he did on 3030 um, initially, you know, kind of going back and forth between, let's say, Bill Simmons and John Walsh and John Skipper and trying to make sure that between, and he was, he was the guy that kind of pulled it all together, right? Because you had all these disparate opinions on, on what the, the doc should be and what the series should be. And he was very much a, a, a great conciliator. And, and, you know, my kind of code name for him during those years was Switzerland. But now he's got a big job and he's going to have to kind of adopt a different kind of posture. And you, in this job, you, you have to kind of stake a claim. You have to plant a flag about what you believe in and how, how far you're going to go and what your position is. And so he's not running between somebody and somebody else. He's actually one of those people. And it'll be interesting to see not only where he comes out on it, but what kind of influence he has on Jimmy, because I do believe, you know, Connor is someone who is, uh, committed to, to, to independent journalism and uh, it's just gonna it's gonna be interesting to see how far he wants to go in his position and how far he can uh, can bring Jimmy into it all right I want to do two more things here and then I'll let you go because I know you got a busy day in uh, Los Angeles and you have not had a lot of sleep with the new change in ESPN leadership Skipper gone Pataro in Connor shell elevated. Norby Williamson pulling more games of throne stuff and continuing to have power. Never bet Jim- against Norby. Never. No, no doubt. Um, where, how do I sort of phrase this? What, what, what do you think Jimmy Pataro's appetite would be for exploring some kind of deal with a barstool sports type of place? In, given we know what happened with that, relationship with skipper once um once he saw some of the stuff from barstool's past once he heard from some women female staffers at espn he killed the deal with pardon my take but pataro's different than skipper 
And I wonder, and this is not just really a Barstool question, but it's sort of a question about, would do you think we'll see Pataro making partnerships and deals with some places that we would not see Skipper do? And if you want to use Barstool as the example, feel free, because obviously they're, they're a mega brand and they're a brand that ESPN pulled the plug under after one show. Because my sense, and I haven't asked anybody at ESPN this, but my sense is, if the same deal came up under Jimmy Pataro, I think he would have went. I think I think the show would have would have been greenlit and would have continued. Now you can tell me I'm wrong about that, and I'd be interested in your answer. But I think Barstool Van Talk would exist if Jimmy Pataro was president as opposed to John Skipper. What are your thoughts there? Uh, I completely disagree. I see. Okay. I see Jimmy as more being more risk averse. I think that he would have been. Uh, and by the way, remember something that. The connection between Bristol and Burbank has never been stronger. I, I really believe that in in all the years since 1996, there has not been. Uh, I mean, George Bodenheimer was, of course, loyal to Michael Eisner, but I think that Michael Eisner was busy running uh, a big company, and even though he was very interested in. ESPN. I don't think he paid as much attention to it on a weekly basis, let's say, as Bob Iger does now or as Kevin Mayer does now. And so I think that what you have in Jimmy is somebody who is going to be working hand-in-hand with Burbank to make sure that the next several years of ESPN is as profitable as possible. And so I think that I see him as being less risk-averse. I think that you have a situation where, uh, in Barstool, where there was this kind of, you know, wild element uh, about the fact that they generated content that was was different and had a different sensibility to it, and that's part of what um, the attraction was. But I think, and Skipper was, and Burke Magnus, they were willing to take a chance on that. Um, but I can't, I can't imagine Jimmy doing that. Um, I, I really can't. You may be right. Uh, no, I think I think I, you, I, I appreciate your insight. I, my guess is you are right. I the fact that he's risk adverse strikes me that um, I think you'd be right on that because that would be well, risk a adverse, huge by the risk. Way, let me explain yeah. that for a second because risk sure. adverse in terms of anything that can potentially damage the brand or anything right, that's going to potentially drag the company into the kind of situation that they got into with Barstool. And I think Skipper, who is you know, look, people are. The worst mistake that people made about John Skipper was they looked at him and he has these like nerdy glasses and, you know, he doesn't have, uh, he keeps his hair very short and, uh, and he's got a, you know, Columbia graduate degree in literature. And, uh, so they thought that he was this buttoned up kind of, you know, really, but he's not, he's a, he's a, he, he's not a radical, but he, as I said before, he's a disruptor. He likes to take chances. He likes to poke at places like the NFL. So I think that he was probably more willing to take on something with a bar stool than, uh, you know, than Jimmy would have been. Yeah, I know. I understand where you come from, although in the end, obviously Skipper killed it, but I, I, I understand your point and, and I appreciate that. That's yeah, it wasn't about the killing it. It was about doing it in the first place. I don't. I don't yeah, think well, it would have. I don't think it would have lasted one meeting with Jimmy. I gotcha. Yeah, and then I mean that that whole thing is kind of fascinating in that there was there were executives at ESPN, including Burke Magnus, who were all for it, who went down the line, who negotiated with Eric and Ardini, who basically got assurances it was going to happen, and then obviously in the end, John Skipper sort of steps in and kills it. And there's a larger discussion about 
you know, how, why, why wasn't the president of ESPN informed about stuff prior to killing it? You know, what's is part of my take a sort of a sub brand of Barstool and should have treated as such and not part of Barstool longer conversations. We'll, we'll do that another time. Last one for me is, and these are two people you've covered a lot over the course of your ESPN tenure. And that's Keith Olbermann and Chris Berman. How would you evaluate right now ESPN's relationship with Keith Olbermann? Because he's been doing a lot of stuff or more stuff than we expected. And do you expect Chris Berman to have any kind of um, reemergence at ESPN? I don't expect him to come back and host their Sunday morning show. But I wonder. I wonder if under Pitaro and under Connor Shell, if maybe we'll see more Berman heading forward than we might have under a John Skipper uh, universe. By the way, and I, I know, I think you'll find this amusing. I do love the fact that ESPN, you know, under Pitaro talking about we're not a political company. We, you know, we're not left wing or right wing. We're in the sports business. And who do, who do they bring into the fold? But one of the most famous left leaning commentators in the history of our country, Keith Oberman, who, to his credit, has not touched sports on his Twitter feed or anywhere else in the last seven, eight months. He's been incredibly disciplined. I give him I give him props for that. Well, that was part of the deal, obviously. No, no um, doubt, no doubt. <laughs> look, I think that, um, let's start with Berman. You know, he came on stage last night to introduce John Elway and Dan Marino, who gave Jim Kelly the award. I, I think that one of the things that has happened with Chris Berman, it's been interesting both inside ESPN and to a certain degree, uh, to a significant degree, I think, outside, is that... Um, as much as you know, he has this cadre of naysayers, particularly on on Twitter. But I think that people have really uh, missed him, and I think that there is general agreement that Countdown is one of the great shows that ESPN has ever done. One of the one of the, I think one of the best NFL shows that have ever been done. And I think that people were pretty tough on him in the waning years of his full time work at ESPN. And those people, I mean, I know. For a fact, I mean, I talked to people who are like, God, he's got to go, he's got to go, and now they're they're missing him. I think that Chris Berman has a uh, has a lot of uh, admirers and respect and a and a kind of fondness from people that he didn't have during the last several years at ESPN, and that's kind of ironic. It just uh, it's just the, it's just the way that it panned out. Um, but I do think in the case of Oberman. Look, the, Norby Williamson was incredibly influential in bringing Keith back. John Skipper, prior to his departure, I think had even bigger plans for Keith. And I think that one of the things that once you got past Keith keeping the promise or making, the, making sure that he was going to keep the promise to keep politics out of it, uh, there's no doubt about his acumen. Uh, I think it was pretty extraordinary when he went to went back to Bristol earlier this year because if you remember when he did his show on ESPN2 several years ago one of the caveats was that he wasn't even allowed back in Bristol he he came from New York Times Square people didn't I think some people didn't appreciate that fact that they were able to bring him back but they weren't able to, it wasn't back in Bristol and this year he kind of finished it off and, and actually came back to Bristol. And it was, um, that was a big deal. And I think that 
one day when Keith Overman sits down and writes his memoirs, if he's really, really going to give us uh, what Lyndon Johnson used to call a diversion with the bark off, um, I think that will, I think, I hope he'll admit to what a emotional day that was for him to get back to, uh, to Bristol. And as far as his future there goes, you know, it, it depends because he arrives back at ESPN at a time when there's certainly a lot of fluidity surrounding what the Sports Center franchise is and wants to be. And I think that uh, I, I don't know whether or not that's something that he does full time in the future, but I think that he does it very well. And he certainly loves baseball and, you know, he's got a lot to contribute there. So, uh, it's it's again it's one of those things where in the world of ESPN you you just you just never know the things that you think would never happen wind up happening and uh, there's you know Keith Overman it's 20, it's 2018 and Keith Overman is in Bristol and Keith Overman is back on ESPN Air and uh, and people and a lot of people there have uh, no problems with it at all so uh, you know it's uh, it's just a it's just a very dynamic surprising place at times. Jim, I will, uh, for another podcast, as we get closer to the fall, I'll bring you back and we can, you know, almost every one of the podcasts we've done lately, we've talked about Get Up and uh, and some of the other ESPN new initiatives, High Noon, et cetera. The viewership numbers on for both have not been good at all. Uh, both of us have talked extensively about Get Up. I'm on the record and have been long before the show even started that eventually the show is going to fold, that it will not be a success. But next time we talk, Jim, we'll, we'll sort of... We'll do a, a deep dive into some of those new shows as it gets closer to the fall, because obviously the NFL season is going to be so important for those kind of shows to see if you can get any kind of catalyst. Because if you don't, that's going to be really telling, and ESPN management is going to have some significant decisions to make in its uh, in its day part programming. Jim Miller, of course, is the best-selling author of books on ESPN and CAA. Saturday Night Live, you can catch him writing various things for places like the uh, the Hollywood Reporter, as well as uh, as well as other Vanity Fair and other very famous media outlets. Uh, Jim, listen, and just a tiny some, little plug. Go ahead, bring back uh, Origins. Oh, Origins, yeah. yeah. Uh, what's what's up with that, man? I mean, you're like, uh, it, my God, it's you're like Dave Chappelle. It's been like quite a like big break between these Origins things. Let's go. When's it, when's it coming uh, back? I had, uh, I had other work to do, but we're going to be back on August 8th for uh, four months in a row and uh, four chapters. And uh, first one is sports-related, so I'm looking forward to uh, getting that out and finishing it up now. And, um, yeah, no, I love doing Origins, and uh, it'll be great to be back. I was told that you're going to do the entire history of Lou Pellegrino's producing career. Is that is that true, or is that down the road, maybe? Well, we have to uh, wait and see whether or not the MPA rating will allow uh, some certain material. NC-17. All right, listen, Jim, good luck to you. I know you're not really going to get a lot of sleep in Los Angeles, but uh, but thank you for coming on so early and joining us on the Sports Media Podcast, and we will certainly chat again. Thanks so much for having me. All right, my thanks to Jim Miller for that conversation, and now we take a ridiculous, dramatic turn but this is someone who I interviewed when I was back at Sports Illustrated on February 20th, 2017. As Conrad would say, you can go back in the archives, episode 105 of the Sports Illustrated Media Podcast. And at the time, Conrad Thompson, and still to this day, hosts uh, some of my favorite podcasts 
that exist. And he went into his story. He was basically just a mortgage guy, basically selling mortgages. And now he's one of the, and this is not an overstatement, he's one of the biggest podcasters in the sports states in America because he is the co-host of Something to Wrestle with Bruce Pritchard, co-host of 83 Weeks with Eric Bischoff, and the co-host of What Happened When with Tony Schiavone, three wrestling-oriented podcasts that regularly appear in the top 40 on iTunes. And it's amazing to see Conrad's success, and I'm beyond psyched because, one, I really enjoy his content, and two, when I met him in Brooklyn, he was a super guy. And Conrad Thompson, welcome to the Sports Media Podcast with Richard Deutsch. Wow, man. Thanks for having me. It's been a long time, but uh, I'm excited to be back with you here today. Yeah, Connor, I could have probably done a better job of putting you over. I'll try to do that during the course of the uh, course of the interview. I'm going to try to throw as many wrestling terms as I can. Um, but the the podcast that we did on February 20th, 2017, got really deep into how you got into the this business and your relationship with Ric Flair and how all this started, your preparation, how you mixed your what was your main job? Obviously, selling uh, you know, working with people in terms of in terms of uh, mortgages and home buying and your love of wrestling and podcasting. So now as we talk, Conrad, in July of 2018, that world has changed and gotten so much bigger. So my first question for you is, could you give the audience just a sense of how you are managing what, in my opinion, would be two different lives? One, a real podcasting business and on the other hand, the job that you've always had, which is is working with uh, with families in Alabama on mortgages. Well, I mean, realistically, it's it's not as difficult as you may imagine. Number one, you just cut out all sleep and personal time, and and if you're willing to make that sacrifice, then you're probably ready for number two. Record on Sunday. You know, when we were doing the television show for the WWE Network, we recorded it first thing Sunday morning, like eight a.m. And then I would take about an hour break and I would do Tony Schiavone and then I would take an hour break and then I would do Eric Bischoff. And that really only left me taping one show during the week. And we usually tape something to wrestle on Thursday night. We have since moved that and now we do it on Tuesday night. So I have one weeknight and then I just sacrifice my Sunday. And then the rest of my free time is filled with some form of research or show formatting or show promotion or social media or what have you. Conrad, do you see these three podcasts as complementary, or do you see them as competitors? No, I see them as complementary. You know, the the original idea was, hey, we've had all this success with Bruce Pritchard's podcast telling the WWF story. Let's get the WCW side of things with Tony Schiavone. And very quickly, I realized, hey, Tony is a comedy podcast. We should embrace the mystery science theater 3000 style format and just go for laughs. But I felt like that left a void where we didn't really get as much information and detail for WCW as we had for the WWF with Bruce. So I feel like Bischoff's show really rounds it out. So now you've got the WCW story, you've got the WWF story, and then you've got something very light, much more lighter fare with what happened when with Tony Schiavone. One of the things that um, is pretty interesting to me about Bischoff is Bischoff has tried podcasts before. He's he's done them, uh, at least it feels like in sort of stops and starts. This one feels like it's going to stick, and I think it's real. I think part of the reason why this is working is because one, you do your research, and two, you're willing to challenge Eric if Eric's uh, you know trying to put himself over 
or if Eric is saying stuff that's contradictory to what was written at the time from Dave Meltzer and others. How did the Bischoff podcast come about? What's the origin of of you and Eric sitting down talking and making this a reality? Well, you know, the, the reality is I wanted to do a WCW podcast fairly early, and I thought Bischoff would be the guy. So I reached out to Eric, but he had already committed to do another podcast, which was Bischoff on Wrestling. So by the time that one got going, you know, he was pretty well set. Well, once the wheels started to come off there and he thought, okay, maybe it's time for me to shake things up and do something a little different, I had already committed to Tony Schiavone. And then earlier this year, it felt like Tony Schiavone was going to just retire from podcasting, if that's even the right phrase. <laughs> right. Just, just because he had gotten a little bit of flack about some of the silly nonsense that we do on the show. And there was one guy in particular who was trying to create a little bit of trouble for him at his real jobs. So I said, okay, you know what? Yeah, let's, let's put it to bed. It's not worth it. Uh, you know, we don't want to, you know, cause harm to your real livelihood. And so we sort of decided that the swan song would be his daughter's wedding. And the sort of joke on the podcast for months was that we were just doing the show to pay for the wedding. And then at the wedding, of course, uh, all the family says, oh, there's been such a change in my dad since he got back in wrestling. You know, he's a different guy. He's happy, blah, blah, blah. So the kids convince him to keep the podcast going. Well, they're all excited that he's there. And, and I guess I am too, but. Uh, in, the, in the back of my mind, I'm like, oh no, I've already gotten Bischoff committed to tag in take Shivani's spot. So I drove home the next morning and realized, I don't know what I've done, but I'm pretty sure I have three podcasts now. And I know I've got this new TV version of the show with WWE Network. This is more than I can handle. So that's when I quickly had to adjust my schedule. No more taping through the week, all on Sunday, and then I could make it work. Uh, did you, what were the conversations like with Eric in terms of what you wanted this podcast to be? You know, I wanted to just tell the real story. You know, I, I feel like Bischoff is a guy who's misunderstood and I feel like because, you know, ultimately WCW lost whatever that means, the war, uh, with the, with WWF, you know, I feel like a lot of people look at a lot of his decisions and just focus on the negative and say, Oh, who would do this? Look, look at this buffoon. But the reality is, this is a guy who really changed professional wrestling. I mean, with the creation of the NWO, with challenging the WWF model going head-to-head, -head, whereas Raw was taped, they're going to go live, they're going to start a little earlier, they're going to stay a little later, there won't be enhancement matches, there'll be competitive matches. I mean, he really changed a lot of things that I don't think he gets a lot of credit for. And so... That's even why I settled on the name 83 weeks. I mean, this guy was a real innovator. He wasn't necessarily a wrestling person. He was a regular guy who understood sales and he had learned a little bit about television production. And then he went to work with a TV company because that's what WCW was. And I think so many people look at some of the quote unquote missteps that WCW made and say, oh, well, they shouldn't have done this. They're saying that through the lens of a, a wrestling business. That's never what WCW was. They were always a television property. And I don't know that his story had ever been properly told. And I think a lot of that is because he can't help himself and he gets into, uh, he gets on his heels and he starts defending and I felt like he needed someone to help get that out. And so I, I thought I would be the guy I could challenge him. I could push, I could pull 
but also wanted to sort of celebrate what his accomplishments were. And that's the reason we named it 83 weeks. And he was good with it. And, and he didn't get the, the Bruce Pritchard podcast at first. I remember Bruce called and told me that he had just had a long conversation with Eric and he said, he just doesn't get it. You know, he, everybody's talking about our podcast and they're not talking about his podcast at the time. And he finally listened and he just doesn't get it. Well, then about a month later, uh, I was hanging out with Bruce and Eric called and he just called to say, Hey, just want to let you know, I just listened to the so-and-so episode. I forget which one I get it. And it took a while for him to get the, the formula of what we were doing, that it's about two, it's two guys who have chemistry with one another, who are friends in real life, who can really do a deep dive on one singular topic and almost play good cop, bad cop, not in terms of putting on a performance, but really debating what really happened from someone who was there compared to what we wrestling fans had always been told happened based on reading the observer or the torch or whatever it may have been. Yeah. First of all, I think it works. I really like 83 weeks. Um, I've, I love Bischoff by the way, as a in-ring promo guy in the WCW. So I, I have fondness for him for that. But one of the things that's really interesting to me, Conrad, about the 83 weeks show compared to Bruce's show, which I obviously, uh, think is fantastic is Eric is willing to go to, um, more business places than Bruce's. And it's probably because obviously Eric's position at the WCW was different than Bruce's. But my sense is that you appreciate that because a lot of where Bruce will totally, you know, it's kind of a running joke on your podcast that Bruce is not going to talk money when it comes to that era. Bischoff will go into the numbers far more than Bruce will. And I think that brings a different element to a wrestling podcast, because that stuff we, even though, yeah, it's dated, it's 20 years ago, those of us who follow this stuff, we've never been privy to the numbers. And I feel like Bischoff has gone to some places where Bruce certainly will not. Do you agree? I, I, I think you you seem to enjoy when Eric gets into the business side of WCW, because he seems willing to go there. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's the part that everybody's always been weird about in wrestling. It's almost like this thing you're not supposed to ask how much someone's making or what the value of their contract was. And I get that in a quote unquote real world, that's weird. I mean, you wouldn't just ask, you know, the waiter at lunch today. So, Hey, how much you pulling down here? I mean, that's weird. I get it. <laughs> right. But, but from a, from the framework of, well, this is sport or this is entertainment, either one, you know, whenever, I mean, there was just an article published in Forbes about how much money the rock earned last year acting in movies. Well, we know what he made. And, you know, if so-and-so signs a new contract with the Cavaliers, we know what the contract value is. So I don't know why that's weird because I'm not necessarily trying to dig so much into their personal finances as much as I am understand the way the business worked. And Bischoff gets that, so he's happy to sort of spill the beans on the numbers, and he doesn't look at it as some sort of invasion of privacy. But I think that's the old school wrestling in Bruce that won't let him talk about it because promoters never wanted the guys to talk about what everyone was making because, well, it just creates more problems for them. Right. The um, I want to ask you, and please get as detailed as you can about this, in terms of the, the business of your podcasting business. One of the things that is really impressive about these podcasts that you do is your distribution is really, really good. You you have YouTube pages. You have the traditional Apple podcast. I can get it on Stitcher. You've created show pages for each of these podcasts. You've created Facebook pages for these podcasts. What, what has been your thinking and what has been your conception 
in terms of getting these podcasts in as many possible places where people can download them? Well, you know, I can't help myself, man. I'm a sales guy. And one of the first things I really believe in sales, you've got to be effective with in order to be successful is you've got to be what I like to call easy to buy from. And so, you know, I, I saw a story, I don't know, maybe 15 years ago that the number one retailer for batteries in the United States, and I'm sure this has changed, was a convenience store. And so like people just bought batteries at the convenience store. And if you've ever priced batteries at a convenience store, you realize that is the most ridiculously overpriced thing it is the literally worst possible place to buy batteries. But I understood, okay, it's just because they're, it's easy. You know, the, the batteries in the remote died. I checked my junk drawer in my kitchen. There aren't any, I'm going down to the corner store and I'm going to grab some batteries and I don't care that it's $10. I really need my TV to work right now. I'm willing to do it. So I wanted to put this, you know, I wanted to be Verizon, more bars and more places, man. I'm putting these podcasts everywhere on any sort of page, on any sort of player, literally all platforms. And I think the other, you know, key to that is to develop some sort of consistency. We started to market the shows based on what time they dropped, starting with Bruce's show. Instead of, you know, calling ourselves Saturday night's main event, which is a famous WWF show on NBC back in the day, which our audience gets. We called ourselves Friday noon's main event and, and we push out shirts that way. As long as we can make it like appointment listening, because that's not even like the way podcasts were designed. The beauty of what we're doing right now is you can listen to it whenever, however, well, what if I sort of pushed back and made it an anticipated event? Like it's going to be at this time every week. And, and that translated to, you know, I can just check my Twitter at the same time every week, and here come hundreds of tweets with people posting the countdown. That's when I knew we were doing something right with the distribution. By the way, if anybody hears any background noise, uh, it's the recycling trucks coming here in Toronto. This is uh, this is what you get for socialism. So it'll be it'll be good in a couple minutes. Um, the the extensions, Conrad, of the podcasts have been really really successful for you. Obviously, you have the WWE show that um, I think people at the beginning who've been listening as long as I have from the first show are stunned that you have a relationship with the WWE, but it happened. You went through your first season. They put it on their network, and it seemed to be the feedback seemed to be pretty good. What I want to ask you about, though, are the live shows, because that has become kind of a really big part of something to wrestle with Bruce Pritchard. You have gone to multiple cities. I was in Brooklyn. I was stunned at how many people were there. So I want to start from the beginning. How did how did this live show concept start? What, 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 at what point did you and Bruce decide, you know what, we could actually take this on the road, do some behind-the-scenes stuff, and people may actually come out and pay for it? Total accident. You know, right before WrestleMania in Orlando, we got an email saying, hey, um, we've got a promoter who would like to bring you guys in to do a show in Orlando. And I replied, LOL, what does that even mean? And he said, you know, well, we would, you know, get a bar downtown Orlando and you guys could do a show right after NXT. And I replied again, what does that mean? Like a show implies that we have it. We're two guys wearing headsets with microphones. What is the show? And he said, I don't know, but he thinks we could sell it out and, he, and this would be your take. And I said, okay, cool. Sounds like we're doing a show. And we put it on sale and we promoted it on the show really hard. And two weeks later, it was sold out. 
And so then, you know, we're excited a about the sellout, but then we're like, um, what did everybody just buy tickets for? We really have no idea what we're doing. And so I'm sort of known for over prepping. So I had all this show prep about, Hey, here's everything cool or fun that I think ever happened in Orlando. We could reference, but we really need some guests. Could we get this guy? Could we get that guy? So I started to think about, you know, all these different gags we can implement in the show. And before you know it, we had a real show format and of course, day of, we had three people who had committed to doing cameos on the show pull out on us. So, uh, that was disappointing, but whatever we, we, we did the show, people dug it. And based on the heels of that, we started getting calls from other promoters in other areas. So as soon as that show was over, we had another one in St. Louis and we were off to the races after that. So we started doing one a month and now it's grown to where sometimes we do two a month as we're speaking now this past weekend, I was in Pittsburgh the weekend before that I was in Rochester and, and now that's created a bit of a buzz with some of these promoters because we're doing these shows in the middle of the day by and large. There are examples where we do them late night, but for the most part, we're doing them as afternoon shows. And so if you're a comedy club, for instance, you've probably got a 7 PM show and then like a nine fifteen show. But what do you have going on at one o'clock in the afternoon? So our show represents, um, found money for them. So they'll give us a really aggressive deal and it can be very profitable for us because the comedy club is looking to put butts in seats and sell them chicken wings and rum and Cokes. So they make, they make a great deal and we make a great deal and we try to piggyback usually wherever the WWE is going to be. So if they've got a pay-per-view event on a Sunday evening, we're going to try to do a show on a Saturday afternoon or a Sunday afternoon. And it's grown from there to where now we're doing shows where WWE is not there. And to our surprise, I didn't think that was necessarily the best business strategy. We're selling those shows out too. So I don't know that it says so much that we have a great show so much as we provide a lot of great content for free and our fans are so passionate and thankful and appreciative that when we're within driving distance of them, they come out and support us. All right, I'm going to Conrad Thompson you here, even though you're probably not going to answer some of these. Uh, can can these live shows for you in a given year, is this a six-figure income for you and Bruce, just on the live shows itself? Yes. Wow. Seven figures? No, no, not no. No way. No, you know, we're both doing really well through ad reads, but the bulk of our, uh, I shouldn't say the bulk, a good chunk of our, income from the show is certainly live shows. You know, it's, it is six figures, uh, for live shows and, and it's a, it's better than that for, I mean, we do a little better on ad reads, but we're not making a million dollars from something to wrestle. No way. Okay. But you, but you could be making a couple hundred thousand dollars from it. If this was the, you know, if this is, I mean, in a way it's probably Bruce's full-time business. Is that a, is that a fair estimate that you can make a couple hundred thousand dollars from the from the success of the podcast, including the extensions. Yes. Each of us make hundreds of thousands of dollars from something to wrestle. Now, when just think about that sentence, you just said, if you said that four years ago, that has to be just preposterous to you, right? It, Can you believe that? It is the most ridiculous thing ever. You know, Bruce handles all the accounting and, you know, there's like one lump sum deposit for something to wrestle. And, Sometimes we communicate, uh, and sometimes we don't because I'm so busy through the week that we usually just catch up whenever we're doing the call. Cause I've got, as you said, the real mortgage gig. So sometimes the deposit, I'll be like, Hey, did we, uh, 
how did we do on so-and-so? And he'll say, oh, I made a deposit two days ago or whatever. And I log into my online banking, and I'm like, there's no way this is right. And to my surprise, man, I guess when WWE puts you on and people want to buy your ads and then they buy your T-shirts and then they come to your live show, we've created a lot of revenue streams, and the result is, like, a pretty good living. So we owe it all to the fans, and obviously the podcast is free, and I'm sure a lot of people say, well, how are you making money on a free podcast? We had to be creative, and so that's really what you and I are talking about today, all these new revenue streams. Yeah, I'm happy for you. I think you guys deserve that success. You've worked hard, and, and I think it's uh, I think it's great. Um, all right, uh, I want a couple of things in terms of just the demographics, because I think people will be interested in this. When I, I remember I asked you this in 2017, so I'll ask you this now as we're midway through 2018. On average, what kind of downloads is, is something to wrestle with getting on a, on a weekly basis? New episodes usually do three to 400,000 uh, in the first week, and then you know it builds from there. But the first, what I always look at is you know a seven-day period, not all shows because our archives do tremendously well but just new episodes. It's somewhere between three and 400,000. When you factor in what the archives are, it would be more than double that because so much of our content, and I really hate the word, is evergreen. So a lot of people will find our show from, say, Survivor Series 1990, and they'll be really interested in that. But if we were talking about the pay-per-view from five days ago, no one cares because it's five days old. But this stuff from 1990, well, that's not old. And that's just a fascinating thing to me, but it is by design. And so we have new people discover the podcast and then they'll go back and dig through the archives. So the result is, you know, that they keep ticking up. And that's been one of my frustrations in podcasting is everybody from an ad delivery side says, oh, well, you can do dynamic ad insertion, which is fancy speak for you should be able to constantly update your ad copy in the old stuff. But as of yet, everyone says they can do it, and no one has actually shown us they can do it effectively because we would love to find a way to monetize the archive listens. It's a little weird to know that you're getting hundreds of thousands of downloads and you're not making any money on it because you got paid on that, you know, 18 months ago or whatever. And whatever promo code we're running in there is probably expired because the advertisers, no matter how much we say or how often we say, Hey, this is not going to expire. You know, people are going to listen to this for a long time. They'll just pull their promo codes down. One of the best examples of this is we did uh, an early ad for Leather by Dan, and he's now changed his name to Belt by Dan. He's a, a a wrestling championship belt maker. He has a backlog now that is incredible. He can't keep up with it. He's gotten corporate deals. He's gotten deals with the Yankees and Bojangles and everywhere in between, and it was all from advertising on something to wrestle. And he advertised for like four weeks, two years ago, and he's, the, the orders are still rolling in. Hmm. It's interesting, and I totally understand that because to do some prep for this podcast, I listened to the podcast of Bischoff in the WWF that you and Bruce did. I mean, I don't even remember when it was. That'd be you know maybe 10 months ago or whatever. So there's a download for you. Podcast isn't close to new, yet if there's a way to make – I mean, there should be a way to make revenue on that for you guys, given that I just listened to that last night so that's 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 interesting and i can understand the archive the, po- the potential popularity of the archive business i would guess that the bischoff podcast and the shivani podcast maybe do 30 40 percent uh download wise of what 
the Bruce podcast does, or am I off on my math? Uh, Bischoff show has almost caught Bruce. Uh, our, our, one of wow. our, our first episode was about the NWO and we switched platforms right in the middle, but it got more than 150,000 downloads the first week. Chris Jericho, when we covered him on the Bischoff podcast, it did over 250,000 in the first week. Uh, so it's, it's getting very, very close. Uh, Tony Schiavone's is not nearly as big. It's probably doing 80 to 140,000, depending on what the topic is. It is sort of interesting to me that that still is a thing. I, I consume a lot of podcasts based on who the guest is. So as a wrestling fan, I would look at a lot of other wrestling podcasts like a Chris Jericho and I would see, oh, he's got Paul Stanley on. I'm going to skip that one. But, oh, he's got Shelton Benjamin. I need to listen to that one. You know, so one is this international music icon, and the other is a professional wrestler from the WWE in 2002. And I'm like, oh, I'll get that one. And so it's weird to me that people still, like, I listen to Howard Stern every day. I don't care if it's new, if it's old, who the guest is. I'm just listening. I'm just in that habit. I'm going to listen to Howard Stern on my ride to work every day. People do not consume podcasts that way. People still pick and choose. And that's even true for Bruce Pritchard. Like King of the Ring 98 did huge numbers for us. Sable 1998, or Sable in the WWF did huge numbers for us. Bob Holly did not do huge numbers the first week, but the second week, based on word of mouth, it was almost double what the first week was. It's just weird to me that there's not a commitment for I'm listening every week, no matter what with everyone. Don't get me wrong. The most hardcore fans, they're listening every single week, but there is a lot of pick and choose. And I see that on Tony Schiavone's show. Most of all, if we cover Jim Crockett promotions, something from you know 1985 to 1988, it dies. If we cover something from the nitro era, it's going to be through the roof. Uh, once again, Conrad, this just proves that uh, Tony Schiavone has killed the WW has killed the WCW as well as your podcast business, given those numbers. So that's that's the second time now Tony has uh, has taken that hit. Um, let me ask you about um, let me ask you about Dave Meltzer, who has turned out to be a uh, character is probably not the right word, although at times he is a character on your show. But he's such an integral part of what you do on these shows, particularly Bruce's show and Eric's show. And you you have an interesting relationship with Dave, even if you've never met him, in that so much of your research is based on The Observer. And I think you clearly have an immense amount of respect for what Dave has done in the business. At the same time, you have two guys who you talk to each week, which really have issues with Dave. Sometimes they're doing a little bit of uh, put on and you know, sometimes, you know, their, their anger is sort of, it's a gimmick and it's funny, but other times it's not a gimmick. They're really pissed off even 25, 20 years later about something Meltzer wrote. How do you feel about your podcast relationship with Dave Meltzer? It's just an open-ended question. Well, I mean, it's, it's been good for business for everybody. And I know that there's a certain section of fans who get really upset when I say that because recently uh, during the uh, New Japan show at the Cow Palace, there was a bit of a, a press conference, like a get together for Dave Meltzer's site. And someone asked a question about whether or not our television show had impacted their website's numbers. 
And Brian Alvarez, who is the partner of Dave Meltzer, sort of shut it down and said, absolutely no effect. But the reality is us talking about that newsletter has introduced a lot of people to that newsletter on the regular podcast. And I guess it's worth mentioning way more people hear the regular podcast than watch the television show. No, I mean, the, the television show is well north of 100,000 buyers, which, as you remind people pretty regularly, is more than whatever Skip Bayless is getting. Uh, but, but, but still, you know, it's, it's, it's a fraction of what the free podcast is. So it's been beneficial for all parties, but that wasn't necessarily why I chose the content. I chose him as a source topic because he's the best that ever did it. I, as I talk to you now, I've subscribed to that newsletter for 21 years, like every single week. And for years and years, of course, it came in the mailbox and I would get my issues on Monday. He would ship them out on Wednesday. They would show up in Alabama because they had to come all the way from San Jose, California. They'd show up in Alabama on a Monday and Monday was my observer day. And I would read the observer and then watch Monday night raw and, and, and WCW Monday nitro. Well, fast forward. Now everything's electronic. So every Wednesday night or Thursday morning, I log into wrestlingobserver.com and catch up on what's going on. And I've done that as part of my regular routine for as long as I can remember. I mean, since I was in high school. So when it was time for us to discuss, you know, the undertaker in 1990, where can I go look and get content for that? Sure. There's a couple of WWE documentaries, but that is the WWE narrative. And if I really want to talk about quote unquote, what really happened, then I can't look to WWE for that. I've got to look somewhere else because I don't want, you know, me to say something. And then Bruce says, yep, that's right. That's not entertaining. You know, I think about like sports talk radio and here in Alabama, sports talk radio would be very boring. If everybody was an Alabama fan, well, Alabama's going to go undefeated. They're going to beat everybody and they're going to beat them bad. We'll be right back after these words. Like, what is there to say? You've got to create something. And so what I wanted to do is, Hey, let's have you know, sort of the dirt sheet narrative is the way that, that Bruce or Eric would call it. But the smart fan has read the observer and this is what we have been led to believe forever. So let me hit you with those and then you respond. And that's where the, the, the genesis of the show came from. And I could have used, I could use the torch more so than the observer, but I just enjoy the observer more. And I think, you know, whenever a big match happens, like Kenny Omega and Cody Rhodes had a huge match a couple of weeks ago at the Cow Palace. Everyone was talking afterwards, what rating will Dave Meltzer give it? Nobody said, hey, I wonder what, how many stars the Torch is going to give it. Because they do that too. But Meltzer has just developed a bit of a brand for himself where, you know, he's the Coca-Cola, he's the Kleenex, he's the Band-Aid. So why not use that? And, and, the, and we're not cross. And I think a lot of people think that you know, for whatever reason, Dave and I don't like each other, but Dave and I email and direct message and text message. And whenever we see each other in real life, we converse and he's going to appear at my podcast convention, which is an absurd thing to say out loud. We're not cross at all, but you know, Bruce and Eric and Tony certainly can be in their feelings about some of the things he's written over the years. And he understands that it's a gimmick. And even I didn't realize how big of a gimmick it was until I went to a live show and there was an, an FDM chant, which is just insane to me. He's not there. What are we even doing? But the fans were into it. And, you know, of course, Bruce couldn't help but cheerlead that. And it became a thing. 
I think the the thing with Bruce certainly is a gimmick. Uh, now he he would deny at different times it's a gimmick, but we're selling an FDM T-shirt, so clearly it's a gimmick, no matter what he says. But with Bischoff, man, I'm just fascinated by listening to Bischoff because so much of what he says on the show, I and a bunch of our listeners think is just made up BS. Like that's not true. That's not what happened. And of course he can always say, well, how would you know you weren't there? And if we reply, what Meltzer said, he would immediately say, well, he wasn't there either. But there's so many things that like we know to be true just based on testimony from not Dave Meltzer, but a thousand other people who were there as well. But somehow Bischoff maintains that it's not. And I think, you know, some, there is a section of fans who get really upset about that. And they think that eh, everything Bischoff says on a show is a lie. I can still listen to that, even if I don't believe he's being truthful, because I'm fascinated by the way he thinks. Like, he doesn't believe he's lying. He believes what he's saying. And to sort of get into his mind is really what the whole show is about. I mean, if we had Vince McMahon on, can you imagine the things he would deny? That plain as day happened, and they're not debatable, and everyone knows this happened. But he just couldn't help himself. He would spin it one way or another. I mean, a great, a great example of this stretching is like Hulk Hogan. He says, you know, I slammed an 800 pound Andre, the giant tore every muscle in my back and he died the next day. None of that happened. Literally nothing I just said is factual, but sometimes when Hulk Hogan says it, like, I mean, if he said, I would never call him. If we did a podcast together, I wouldn't call him on that. That's like, if you, if you listen to that, you know, Andre didn't die the next day, you know, that he didn't weigh 800 pounds. There's no need for me to address it. Like if you're listening, you know, that's not what happened, but it's Hulk Hogan. It's fun. And it's interesting that he believes it. Let's, let's let it roll and go to the next topic. And that has been something Dave Meltzer takes issue with because Dave Meltzer is a journalist and he wants everything said to be factual. And he takes it very, very personally when someone says that he's lying, because that's how he believes he makes his living by telling the truth. But what I know is sort of behind the scenes, sometimes People feed him misinformation because they have their own agenda. And that's just, that's life, man. That's, that's the way journalism and reporting goes, whether it's involving wrestling or sports or politics or anything. I appreciate that answer. Uh, here's where I want to finish up on. And that's, um, that's a couple of things that have just happened in the news. One obviously is Hulk Hogan's, I guess he called sort of reinstatement with the WWE. And a couple of things here for you, Conrad. One, given how close Bischoff is to Hogan, have you ever discussed with Hulk Hogan doing a podcast or some kind? I don't know if he's ever done one, but it would logically, and I'm not sure how good he would be, but just business-wise, it seems like the potential for that podcast, at least in terms of interest from sponsors, would be big. Yes, it has been discussed. Uh, he made his first appearance after the situation in 2015 on the Ric Flair show, uh, and we had him on as a guest. Uh, I was, of course, co-hosting that with Rick, and it did phenomenally well. And then he did a run-in, uh, which is what we call an unannounced appearance, a couple of weeks ago on 83 Weeks when we were celebrating the life and times of Dusty Rhodes. And we didn't promote it. It was a real surprise, and it got tremendous feedback. And I know behind the scenes, there has been a major player in podcasting trying to land a Hulk Hogan podcast for months. And I suspect that they're probably throwing all kinds of offers and incentives 
But when I ever have a conversation with Fishoff about it, he very much believes that Hogan is a professional beach bum and that Hogan would not commit to doing it on a regular or routine schedule. You know, the idea of him sitting down and committing to, we're going to tape an episode every single week at this time. is just not something he's going to do because he doesn't have to, you know, the, the economics of his life and mine and yours are probably a lot different. So he doesn't, he doesn't have to, and, and he doesn't want to. And if he could float around the pool and drink a Corona, why wouldn't he? So I don't think it's going to happen. And I do think if it does happen, it'll be relatively short lived. But I would love to do it with him, man. He is the reason I'm a, I'm a Hulk Hogan, or a, he's the reason I'm a wrestling fan. It's all about Hulk Hogan. You know, when I was a kid, I can't tell you how many times I tried to leg drop my friends and would cut my ears and we would pose in the living room and jump off the couch. I mean, it was all about Hulk Hogan when I was a kid. So I would I would gladly jump at the opportunity to do it. And I know sponsors would throw big money at it, but I don't know that it would have the longevity just because I think he'd get bored. Let me ask you a couple questions about how you think Hogan will be received and how he might be used. One of the things we've seen actually in the last 48 hours are some of the African-American stars of the WWE, including New Day, who basically have said that they, they need more from Hogan in terms, of, in terms of an apology, in terms of... I'm not even sort of sure how I would characterize it, but m- maybe in terms of of the realism of of what what was clear what was clearly pretty awful and racist on tape, you know, Hogan simply not just sort of doing three years of being away, but maybe becoming a different person or realizing how bad that was. I'm not sure exactly what it means that he's back, and other than talking to the guys and maybe making appearances at shows. I would imagine eventually we're going to see him at a WrestleMania or somewhere else. But So two questions for you. One, what did you make of the reinstatement? And two, what do you suspect will be his public um, public performance, if that's the right way to phrase it, with the WWE? Well, first of all, as a fan, I'm glad he's back. You know, I mean, I know that's not popular and there's probably some people who are going to hear that and think less of me and be mad. But I mean, the reality is exactly what I said ago. I grew up a Hulk Hogan fan. I am, I am an unapologetic Hulk Hogan, Mark. He is the reason I'm a wrestling fan. And I was a fan girl when he was on 83 weeks a few weeks ago. So I'm not going to deny that I'm not excited that he's going to be back on television, but I do understand that he did offend a lot of people. And I can't speak to, you know, what's the right. It's always like whenever I have a fight here at the house, you know, if there's ever a disagreement in my real life relationship and, you know, whatever that looks like, there is always the idea of, okay, now that I know I've messed up, don't you think I've apologized enough? You see, that's not up to me. I've got to apologize until she says it's okay. I've got to try to and make this right until she says it's okay. It's not a matter of, well, I think I've apologized enough. Like any guy listening to this knows what I mean. You got to eat a little more crow and eat enough until she says you're okay. And that's sort of where I think this is. Like I can't speak to, you know, what was enough for new day and what wasn't enough for new day. And I don't know that you or I, as a couple of white dudes really can, but I, I, I don't, I don't, anybody agrees that 
oh, what he said was fine. And and I think some people who just jump to, well, the WWE must be saying that this is okay. I don't think that that's what that means. You know, it, in the end, um, he is going to have to eat a little crow and make some apologies and do an apology tour, not just behind the scenes, but on TV. And I understand he's tried to do some of that, but I do think he's going to have to do some more now. But I know that he really wants to be there. So I'm glad he's got the opportunity to be there and at least the opportunity to have the platform to make those amends. But, you know, what's enough and what's too much, I don't know that that's for us to decide. You expect him to do some kind of walkout at a WrestleMania or a in a sort of a pay-per-view type of event like that? 1,000%. I, I believe that he would probably do it on TV first and have some sort of segment I don't even know that he would come out in public first. I think they would probably air something on the WWE network, uh, which rumor and innuendo is they taped his apology and they'll probably put that on 24. Uh, and I imagine that they'll put that on the WWE network after Monday night raw. And then maybe the following week or maybe the next day on SmackDown, they'll show a little clip of that because they do just want to sort of, get it out there. And I think that'll get picked up by a lot of the websites and get people talking. And then they might have a little web feature. And then once they've had a a chance to sort of test the waters, then I think they introduce them in front of the right crowd. And, you know, that might even be a Canadian shot, but it would certainly be a Hulk Hogan town. I mean, you think back to the ridiculous responses that Hulk Hogan's gotten over the years in a Toronto or a Montreal or somewhere like that maybe that's the right crowd to bring them out in front of. Uh, because if you bring them out in Philadelphia or New York, 50, eh, 50, maybe how he'll be received. But if you bring him out in Montreal or Toronto, maybe those fans are just such unapologetic Hulk Hogan fans that it'll come across great on TV and maybe set a precedent for future. But I do believe he'll be a big part of WrestleMania. And I think he could even be a really big part of SummerSlam And I think that's probably the reason they brought him back here to start sort of sowing the seeds for SummerSlam. If I'm WWE, I'm trying to find a way to do more with Hulk Hogan if and when I can. Was uh, Montreal the city where he got the pop after the Rock WrestleMania match? Uh, That match was in Montreal. That's right. Okay. So that's, I mean, I think that's probably the most famous crowd moment with Hulk Hogan, non, um, you know, non match, basically. So that, that's, that's an interesting thought in terms of Canada. All right, the last one for me and Conrad, I, I really appreciate your time today. And that is, um, what, how do you think uh, uh, the WWE has used Rousey so far? She's been really interesting to me in that, you know, early on, I, I think probably your most wrestling fans would be like, they maybe wish she was a little bit better on the mic, but the in-ring work has been really good. And I think better than most people expected and so far i think they've used her pretty interestingly in that not a lot it's not a lot of stuff on the mic but use her athleticism and she's obviously an incredible athlete probably the best in the women's division to really set the narrative up and set the storyline up so i've i think they've done a really good job so far with someone who still has miles to go in terms of improving on the stick what do you what do you think of how wwe has used rousey right now I don't know that I could have used her any better. I mean, you look at what that stock price has done this year. You got to think Ronda Rousey's a big part of that. And I know some wrestling fans will say, oh, she didn't do anything. Look at the matches she had. They didn't matter. That doesn't matter. 
you know, when you're out negotiating television contracts, you know, the UFC had a huge deal with Fox for years and years and years. Ronda Rousey had how many matches on Fox for UFC? Zero. Well, now all of a sudden, hey, one of the biggest stars in the world, you thought you were in business with them and they never gave you to her, but we will. We're going to put her on TV, not just every now and again. She will be a regular main featured character on Fox. They get a huge deal. And that has continued, and that's the reason the stock price continues to rise, because they've understood this television rights game now in a much bigger level. And they're just going behind folks who made bad deals, who may be over-promised and under-delivered, which, depending on who you believe, that's what the UFC deal was for them. So I think they've used their star power in the right way. And to your point, they've not overexposed her to the point where, you know, she's not going to be as polished as you might have hoped. But just given her natural understanding of fighting sports, and then, you know, she's been in training in judo basically her entire life, she understands a lot of the mechanics of wrestling before she ever gets in there. Now it's just a matter of the showmanship, and she had enough of that to make her the biggest star in the UFC. So I always expected that she would do fine. The The trouble is, how do you how do you get her on the travel schedule? And And I think they've got to be very selective there to not burn her out because she was, you know, used to going to the gym every day, but that's not what WWE is. WWE is living out of a suitcase and going 300 miles every single night in the middle of the night. And I don't think that they're going to have her do that, but I do think it's just a matter of time before that travel schedule starts to catch up with her. So they've got to be very selective. And if they do that, she won't be overexposed. She'll be less likely to get injured. And more importantly, she'll be less likely to be burned out and still enjoy what she's doing because she is wealthy on a level that most WWE superstars are not with the small exception of John Cena and maybe a handful of others. So at any point she can say, "Ah, I don't need this. I'm going home. So as long as they can avoid the burnout factor, I think she'll be a big star for them for years to come. I agree with you. Listen, Conrad, uh, you've taken a lot of time. You've given me a lot of time today. I really appreciate that. The podcast um, I continue to listen to, and, you know, there's a little bit of a fanboyish take here, and I usually don't, I'm generally speaking, not a fanboy of almost anything, but uh, I really appreciate the content. It's, uh, it's great to run to, it's great to work out to, it's just great to, a lot of times even as I'm um, walking to the uh, lovely subway here in Toronto, I'll check out the show. So I'm, I'm really happy for your success, and I really appreciate the excellent content. Let's give that again. That's Conrad Thompson, Something to Wrestle with Bruce Pritchard. 83 weeks with Eric Bischoff and what happened when with Tony Schiavone. He is, uh, they call him the podfather in the wrestling uh, business, and uh, and he has, um, he is certainly that. Listen, Conrad, we we uh, we'll have to do this more often. I'll try to have you on, you know, more than once every year. And uh, like I said, man, continued success. It was great to meet you in Brooklyn, and uh, and I'm really happy for you. The, the content's been great, and. Um, and I hope you just keep on doing it. So thanks for the time today on the Sports Media Podcast. Man, thanks for having me on. You've always been super cool to us. And I can't tell you how excited we were to know that we were on your radar. You know, your support of us so early and so often has meant the world to us. And you've become part of a running gag on the show where every now and again, Bruce and I yell that we're a two-time podcast of the year. And it's because of one of those awards you gave us at Sports Illustrated for podcast of the year. And you know, we had no business being in there as a professional wrestling podcast, but somehow 
you dug it enough to stick your neck out for us, and we really appreciate it, and it means the world to Bruce and I. And I wish you could come down to StarCast. Hopefully we get to do a second one, but uh, I understand that maybe travel isn't in the cards right now. But one day we've got to get you to one of these things because it's going to be shenanigans on a level where only you can appreciate it. I will make it. By the way, in terms of giving you that award, that was called uh, my boss was on vacation for a week, so I was able to sneak it in. <laughs> so you always got you got to pick your spots, as you know. you got to... You got to know when the promotion makes it work for you. So uh, I was happy to do that. But uh, again, people who are listening to this who know Conrad will check out all his podcasts. And again, I can definitely uh, vouch for uh, a couple of us, including Jimmy Trana, who does a Sports Illustrated podcast now, Andy Gray, our former colleague. Uh, we all went, uh, Dave Sepperson, we all went to see Conrad and Bruce in Brooklyn. It was a lot of fun. The behind the scenes show or the live show actually was great. So, Conrad, we'll be talking again. I'm sure we'll be talking on uh, direct message as well. Continued success. Thanks for joining us today on the Sports uh, Media Podcast. Thanks, man. All right, back in the studio. I like to say back in the studio, but I'm no longer in the studio. Uh, Lou Pellegrino is in New York. I'm in Toronto. My thanks to Conrad Thompson. Um, you know, I could talk to that guy all day. He, those are three of my favorite podcasts. Uh, I risk Shivani. They're really two of my favorite podcasts. Nah, I love Shivani. He's fun. Um, and so if you're a wrestling fan, you already know about those podcasts, and they're just great to listen to. Uh, my thanks to Jim Miller on ESPN as well. Previous podcasts, the last couple we've done, we uh, had John Orand on a week ago to talk about ESPN's deal with the UFC and Fox's deal for the WWE, as well as LaChina Robinson on covering women's basketball and all the trolls that uh, that sport faces. We did the media impact of LeBron James going to the Lakers with Tanya Ganguly of the LA Times, Lee Jenkins of Sports Illustrated, Dave McMenamin of ESPN, and then go down the list. Molly Sullivan, Adnan Ver, Carissa Thompson, Joe Tessitore, Doris Burke, Brim Lundquist, etc. Please check out the Sports Media with Richard Deitch podcast uh, at Apple or Stitcher or anywhere you get podcasts. Sign up, leave us a review. That's how this continues on. For Cadence 13, for Lou Pellegrino, this is Richard Deitch. We'll see you again on the Sports Media with Richard Deitch podcast.